Greetings and welcome to a multiple reading of Master of the Universe, otherwise known as Twilight Fan Fiction Source Material for Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm not sure if I should call it Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James or Master of the Universe by Snow Queen's Ice Dragon as it was originally. So what is going to happen here is I'm going to read from the fan fiction and then I'm going to be reading from Jenny Trout's recaps of Fifty Shades of Grey called I Read Fifty Shades of Grey so you don't have to. And hopefully you'll be able to make some parallels on your own. I have to warn you that E.L. James is a British author, so the fan fiction is riddled in Britishisms as well as Fifty Shades of Grey. So if I mess up, I'm just not going to read this book over and over again. You can tell how I feel about it. Anyway, my name is Catherine Shaw. And I am welcoming you to this new podcast, and maybe I'll get better at it. Let me know. Chapter 1, Master of the Universe. I scowl with frustration at myself in the mirror. Damn my hair, it just won't behave, and damn Rose for being ill and subjecting me to this ordeal. I have tried to brush my hair into submission, but it's not towing the line. I must learn not to sleep with it wet. I recite this five times as a mantra whilst I try once more with the brush. I give up. The only thing I can do is restrain it tightly in a ponytail and hope that I look reasonably presentable. Rose is my roommate and she has chosen. Okay, that's a bit unfair because choice had nothing to do with it, but she has the flu and as such cannot do the interview she's arranged with some mega industrialist for the student newspaper. So I have been volunteered. I have final exams to cram for, one essay to finish, and I'm supposed to be working this afternoon, but no. Today, I have to head into downtown Seattle and meet the enigmatic CEO of Cullen Enterprise Holdings, Inc. Allegedly, he's some exceptional tycoon who is a major benefactor for our university, and his time is extraordinarily precious, much more precious than mine. And he's granted Rose an interview. A real coup, she tells me. Damn her extracurricular activities. Bella, I'm sorry. It took me nine months to get this interview, and it will take me another six to reschedule. And you and I will both have graduated by then. As the editor, I can't blow this out. Please, Rose begs me in her rasping, really sore throat voice. I stare at her red-rimmed, runny eyes and bright pink nose. Of course I'll go, Rose. You should go back to bed. Would you like some paracetamol? Yes, please. Here are the questions in my mini-disc recorder. Just press record here. Make notes and I'll transcribe it all. I know nothing about him. My voice is anxious. The questions will see you through. Go. I don't want you to be late. Okay, I'm going. I have a long drive. Go back to bed, but make sure you eat. I made you some soup to heat up later. I stare at her fondly. Only for you, Rose, would I do this. 
I will. Good luck. And thanks, Bella. You're a lifesaver as usual. I smiled wryly at her and head out the door to our room. I cannot believe I've let Rose talk me into this. But then Rose can talk anyone into anything. She'll make an exceptional journalist. She's articulate, strong, persuasive, argumentative, beautiful. And she's my dearest, dearest friends. The roads are clear and I set off from Portland. It's early and I don't have to be in Seattle until 2 in the afternoon. Fortunately, she's lent me her car. I'm not sure my old truck would be up to the journey. Well, it is the least she can do. I frown into the rearview mirror. But I have to say, her sporty BMW Z4 is much more fun to drive than my truck, and the miles slip away as I put my foot down. It's cloudy, but at least it's not raining as I make my way into the city. The Seattle traffic is heavy, but I have an hour to go, and so I'm feeling fairly confident that I should be able to find somewhere to park. Thank heavens for sat-nav on a Z4, otherwise I'd be royally screwed. My destination is the headquarters of Mr. Cullen's Global Enterprise. It's a huge 30-story office building, all curved glass and steel. An architect's utilitarian fantasy with Cullen House written discreetly in steel over the glass front doors. It's a quarter of two, and I feel an immense sense of relief that I'm not late as I walk into the enormous, frankly intimidating, glass, steel, and white sandstone first floor foyer. Behind the solid sandstone desk is a very attractive blonde-haired young woman who smiles pleasantly at me. She's wearing the sharpest charcoal suit, jacket, and white shirt I have ever seen, and she looks immaculate. I'm here to see Mr. Cullen, Isabella Swan for Rosalie Hale. Excuse me one moment, Mrs. Swan. She arches her eyebrows slightly as I stand self-consciously in front of her. I'm beginning to wish I had borrowed one of Rose's jackets rather than wear my navy blue peacoat. I have made an effort and worn my one and only skirt. It's brown and I have sensible brown knee-length boots and a blue sweater. For me, this is smart. I tuck one of the escape tendrils of my hair behind my ear as I pretend she doesn't intimidate me. Miss Hale is expected. Please sign in here, Miss Swan. You'll want the end lift on the right, pressed for the 30th floor. She smiles kindly at me, amused no doubt as I sign in. She hands me a security pass that has a visitor very firmly stamped on the front. Personally, I think it's obvious that I'm visiting. I don't fit in here at all. Nothing changes, I inwardly sigh. I thank her and walk over to the lifts, past the two security men who are both far more smartly dressed than me in their well-cut black suits. The lift whisks me with unseeming haste to the 30th floor. The doors silently fly open and I'm in another large foyer again all glass, steel, and white sandstone. In front of me, there's another desk of sandstone and another young blonde woman dressed impeccably in black and white who rises to greet me. Miss Swan, 
Could you wait here, please? She points to the seated area of white leather chairs. Behind the leather chairs is a large glass-walled meeting room with an enormous dark wood table and 20 dark wood chairs around it. Beyond that, a floor-to-ceiling window with a view of the Seattle skyline looking out through the city towards the Pacific Ocean. It's a stunning vista. I stand and admire it, momentarily distracted before I sit. I fish the questions out of my satchel and go through them, inwardly cursing Rose for not providing me with a brief biography. I know nothing about this man I'm about to interview. He could be 90. He could be in his 30s. My nerves are beginning to kick in. I am uncomfortable with this one-to-one stuff. I am much better in a group scenario, preferably not asking questions, sitting somewhere in the back. Well, judging by the building, all clinical and modern, he's probably in his 30s, fit, tanned, blonde, to match the rest of his personnel. Another elegant, flawlessly dressed blonde comes out of the large door to the right. What is it with the immaculate blondes? It's like Stepford here. I take a deep breath and stand up. Miss Swan, the latest blonde, asks. Yes, Mr. Cullen will see you in a moment. May I take your jacket? Oh, please, I struggle out of my peacoat. Have you been offered any refreshment? Er, no. Oh, dear, am I going to get blonde number one into trouble? She frowns and eyes the young woman at the desk. Would you like tea, coffee, water? Glass of water would be lovely, thank you. Jessica, please fetch Miss Swan a glass of water, she says sternly to the young woman at the desk. Jessica scoots up immediately and walks to the door on the other side of the foyer. My apologies, Miss Swan. Jessica is our new intern. Please be seated. Mr. Cullen will probably be another five minutes. Jessica returned with a large glass of ice water. Here you go, Miss Swan. Thank you. Blonde number two goes and sits at the sandstone desk at her station, and they both continue with their work. Perhaps Mr. Cullen insists on all of his employees being blonde. Is that legal? I wonder idly. When the door opens and a tall, elegantly dressed, rather beautiful black man exits, I have definitely worn the wrong clothes. He turns and says through the door, Golf, definitely, Cullen. I don't hear the reply. He turns, sees me, and smiles kindly. Jessica has jumped up and called the lift. Good afternoon, ladies, he says as he departs through the sliding door. Mr. Cullen will see you now, Miss Swan. Do go through. Blonde number two says. I stand rather shakily, collect my satchel, leave my water, and make my way to the partially open door. You don't need to knock, just go in, she smiles at me. And I push open the door and stumble through, tripping over my own feet as usual and falling head first into the office. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the end of chapter one of Master of the Universe. Now I'm about to go into the recap of I Read Fifty Shades of Grey, So You Don't Have To, Jenny Trout, author, being read by Katherine Shaw. Fifty Shades of Grey, Chapter 1, or Why Anna is the Shittiest Friend Ever. So as I announced in a delirium of hatred last night, I have begun reading Fifty Shades of Grey. 
and I'm going to share that experience with you. This will accomplish two things. It will provide me with an important emotional outlet, thus lowering my blood pressure. It will give you the experience of reading the book without having to actually read it. Much like videotaping a friend getting stitches gives you the experience, but not the pain and the hassle. Cutting your own finger with a razor blade because you're too lazy to get up and get scissors to open the USB drive packaging. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. Our story begins with our heroine, Anna, looking in the mirror. She doesn't like what she sees. Her hair is uncooperative. Also, she has huge blue eyes and pale skin in our American culture, which does not value these things as traditional hallmarks of beauty or anything. She's pissed off at her roommate, Kate. Why? Because Kate has lined up an interview with the most powerful entrepreneur in the country, Christian Gray. But she got the flu and now she can't go. And even though Anna's having a bad hair day, has exams coming up, has to work, her selfish friend is trying to manipulate her into going and doing the interview herself. Therefore, she cannot attend the interview she'd arranged to do with some mega industrialist tycoon I've never heard of for the student newspaper. So I have been volunteered. I have final exams to cram for, one essay to finish, and I'm supposed to be working this afternoon. But no, today I have to drive 165 miles to downtown Seattle in order to meet the enigmatic CEO of Gray Enterprises Holding Inc., as an exceptional entrepreneur and major benefactor of our university, his time is extraordinarily precious. She's never heard of this guy, except that she knows the extremely unwieldy name of his com- company, that he's an entrepreneur, that he gives tons of money to the school she attends, and that he's super busy. This is the logical error that I am finding over and over in this book, and I've only read three chapters so far. But putting that aside for a minute, doesn't this sound like an amazing opportunity for her friend? I bet Anna feels really bad that Kate is going to miss on out on the interview of a lifetime, right? Anna, I'm sorry. It took me nine months to get this interview. It will take another six to reschedule, and we'll both have graduated by then. As the editor, I can't blow this off. Please, Kate begs me in her rasping, sore throat voice. How does she do it? Even ill, she looks gaming and gorgeous. Strawberry blonde hair in in place and green eyes bright, although now red-rimmed and runny. I ignore my pang of unwelcome sympathy. Of course Anna doesn't feel bad. Why should she? She's the heroine, and we have to like the heroine because she's the heroine. So when her friend is saying, please, for me, blow off work and classes and go meet this famous person so you can put this interview on your resume, when it could have been mine had I not contracted this horrible respiratory illness, Anna can only think, ugh, it's so not fair that she's prettier than me. I will absolutely not feel sympathetic towards you. And the reader better know whose side to be on, damn it. As Anna complains more in the narration about how good Kate is at manipulating people and how awful it's going to be to meet this rich, successful guy, she outwardly acts like it's not a big deal. This gives me the distinct impression that Anna is one of those people who agree or 
even offer to do a favor for you, like it doesn't inconvenience them at all, then immediately phones up a friend and bitches about you and all the boundaries you're overstepping. And then, exactly like one of those people, Anna attempts to tell the reader how great Kate is and how she's her very best friend after complaining about her for two solid pages. At this point, do I actually have to say that Anna is Bella Swan? So Anna sets off from Vancouver, headed towards Portland. Wait a second. Didn't she say she had to go to Seattle to meet this gray guy? I can never tell where I am in this. Seriously. Just the nebulous Pacific Northwest, I guess. Where the miles slip away as I floor the pedal to the metal. Dear non-American author trying to write in Americanisms. It's either floor it. Or put the pedal to the metal. And actually, no one says the latter anymore. By the way, she's flooring it to the pedal in a Mercedes loaned to her by Kate. A Mercedes, and she's still bitching? Her car, a quirky old vehicle, but not a quirky old truck, is unreliable like a quirky old truck. But it's a VW Bug, so she's definitely not Bella Swan. Still, there's something endearing about reading a non-American author trying to capture the slang of my people. When she gets to Christian Gray's steel and glass office building with the building name in steel letters over the glass doors to the steel and glass and sandstone CCC combo breaker lobby, we learn that Anna's real name is Anastasia Steele because that's totally not a porn star name. <laughs> and the word steel has to be used in some form or another in every single sentence in this scene. Anna runs through a succession of blonde receptionists, each one making them or her feel more and more like Anne Hathaway in the interview scene from Devil Wears Prada. In fact, her outfit sounds kind of familiar. I'm beginning to wish I borrowed one of Kate's formal blazers rather than wear my navy blue jacket. I have made an effort and worn uh, my one and only skirt, my sensible brown knee-length boots, and a blue sweater. For me, this is smart. Where have I seen this before? So at least we have some sort of visual inspiration for Sad Sack Anna. Anyway, there are a lot of blondes working in the office. And as Anna appears to hate blondes more than Anita Blake does, she absolutely certain she doesn't fit in. She signs in, gets a visitor's pass, and heads upstairs to the second steel and glass and sandstone and steel and more glass and mahogany and red and yellow and pink and brown and scarlet and black, and ochre, and peach, and ruby, and olive, and violet, and fawn, and rose, and azure, and a lemon, and russet, and gray, and purple, and white, and pink, and orange, and blue lobby. I wish I could tell you I just used more adjectives and words than James did. But to describe this, this sequence of events, I am many things, but I am not a liar. This is one of my biggest problems with Fifty Shades of Grey. It's like a team of cameras is following Anna everywhere she goes, every second of the day, and it's being transcribed for the reader into a book, no matter how inane the details. Mr. Grey, we'll see you in a moment. May I take your jacket? Oh, please, I struggle out of my jacket. 
Have you been offered any refreshment? Um, no. Oh dear, is blonde number one in trouble? Blonde number two frowns and eyes the young woman at the desk. Would you like tea, coffee, water? She asks, turning her attention to me. A glass of water, thank you, I murmur. Olivia, please fetch Miss Steele a glass of water. Her voice is stern. Olivia scoots up immediately and scurries to a door on the other side of the foyer. My apologies, my apologies, Miss Steele. Olivia is our new intern. Please be seated. Mr. Gray will be another five minutes. Olivia returns with a glass of iced water. Here you go, Miss Steele. Thank you. Let's do a little writing exercise, shall we? Let's see if we can make that chunk of pointless dialogue into something more manageable to move the story along to literally anything else in literally a tenth of the time. I'll go first. One of the blonde receptionists took my coat and offered me a glass of water. I'm no Nora Roberts, but I think I can safely say that the book would not have been ruined without the unnecessarily interplay Anna witnesses between two receptionists and the odd focus on the iced water and who is in possession of said water at which time. Because Anna still doesn't know a thing about Christian Gray. Besides his name, his mother's maiden name, his place of birth, the name of his first pet, the security code on his... Uh, on the back of his visa card, his blood type, and whether or not he's circumcised. She doesn't know how old he is or what he looks like. She figures he's probably blonde, too, and wonders if it requi if he requires his employees to be blonde. She's wonder wondering idly if that's legal, and I'm wondering if this isn't some neo-Nazi thing, but it's totally cool because then a black guy comes out of his office talking about golf. So Christian Gray is definitely not an Aryan nationalist. The blonde send Anna into Mr. Gray's office. And wouldn't you know it, like a dope, she falls right through the door and winds up on her hands and knees in front of Christian Gray, foreshadowing. She is so embarrassed that she says all kinds of strong curse words like holy crow and double crap. No single craps for Anna. Oh, no. She's a rebel and a potty mouth of the highest caliber. Immediately, she realizes that Christian Gray is not some ancient 40-year-old dude practically crumbling to dust atop his icy blonde empire, but a hot young man. So young and attractive. Very attractive. He's tall, dressed in a fine gray suit, white suit, and black tie with unruly dark copper hair and intense bright gray eyes that regard me shrewdly that is one hell of a tie i'm gonna have to ask someone please look into the into the kindness and goodness of your soul and photoshop me a picture of a black tie with robert pattinson's hair and eyes stuck on it gazing at me shrewdly when she shakes his hand Anna has some sort of short-circuit situation that makes her blink like a malfunctioning Furby. She explains that she's there on behalf of her sick roommate, then makes a stunningly astute comment about some paintings in his office. Of course, he agrees with, with her and puts Anna immediately at ease, knowing that they are on the same level intellectually. Just kidding. Instead, she's building him up in her head, calling him an Adonis and being too embarrassed by his really, really good-lookingness to operate the recorder. He's amused by her uncertainty, she can tell, because tycoons often 
find it amusing to have their time stolen by inept student non-reporters. Then she asks if she can record his answers, which is the most bizarre sentence I think another person can ask the one they are interviewing. Do you mind if I make some kind of permanent record of the answers you give me? Or would you rather this all become a pointless exercise in time-wasting? Once they launch into the interview, things really pick up. Ha, just kidding again. We've finally got the hero and heroine of what is touted as the hottest, sexiest, most toe-curling, naughty, erotic novel since the Marquis de Sade was branded a lunatic together in the same room. And what's going to happen? Pages upon pages of clumsy exposition. Why show when Christian himself can tell? In a series of incredibly banal interview questions, everything we as a reader are going to need to know to have a clear impression of his character for the rest of the book. And let's also see Anna insult him over and over again, from suggesting his success is based on luck to outright calling him a control freak. For someone who is so insecure, just moments ago, Anna begins to verbally spar with the this powerful guy while representing her sick roommate whose reputation as an editor of the college newspaper is writing on this interview. Still, even though he is, by her own description, an arrogant control freak who does weird things with his fingers while looking at her, Anna is completely sexually paralyzed by his stunning physical appearance, which, as far as I can tell from the numerous superlatives Anna breathlessly recounts, is like looking directly at the face of God. If God were an orgasm dipped in chocolate and the perfect pair of jeans... So, while Christian Grey is rattling off incredibly intimate details of his life to a rude, awkward, mousy college student who just spilled her ass through his office doors, Anna is practically writing odes to his teeth and wondering what's so wrong with her that she would be so distracted by someone who is just the physical manifestation of the very soul of perfect beauty. The scene goes on so long, Christian actually has to cancel his next meeting. When it comes time for Anna to leave, he teases her about her earlier fall, helps her put her on, a, on her jacket, and walks her to the elevator, but only after this passage. Well, you'd better drive carefully. His tone is stern, authoritative. Why should he care? Because he's Edward Cullen, Raider. Because he's Edward Cullen.